Money and Me on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. Welcome to Money and Me. Billionaire investor Carl Icahn says there very well could be a recession in the U.S. or worse. He is loaded on protection against a steep sell-off in the market. What could that mean for you? And does my featured guest today agree with Carl Icahn? In the news also, Alibaba increases its share buyback. And there's a lot of speculation about other Chinese tech firms following suit. Uh, so what, what does this mean for you if you're looking at investments in Chinese tech shares? And then we take a look at Allegheny. The credit rating agency Moody's is now considering an Allegheny upgrade on its Berkshire takeover. We take a closer look at uh, sort of the uh, merger logic, shall we say, acquisition logic. Berkshire has acquired Allegheny. Why exactly? Uh, Berkshire Hathaway Class B shares, by the way, close at 348 US dollars in case you, you know, thinking of getting in on the action. And speaking of action, let's bring on board Arun Pai. He's Chief Strategy Officer at Flow to weigh in on all the issues today. Good morning, Arun. How are you? Good morning, Michelle. I'm good. How are you? Doing really well. Doing really well. Uh, Let's talk about the U.S. and whether or not there is likely to be a recession. He's a renowned investor, Carl Icahn, and he says surging inflation is a major threat to the economy, that the Russian-Ukraine war has added more uncertainty to his outlook. So he says uh, corporate America can take some of the blame for this likely outcome. First up, do you agree with Carl Icahn that an economic downturn in the U.S. could be on the horizon despite what the Fed's trying to do? And what could this mean for investors tactically positioning? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, this is a guy who's been investing for like over 60 years, give or take, net worth of $20 billion or something. So (laughs) it definitely pays heed to, I mean, people might disagree with the way he goes about making money, but it definitely pays heed to at least listen to what his future prediction is of the market. You know, honestly, most people my age, plus minus five or 10 years, Hmm. really haven't been through a truly like a high inflation environment, right? You'll have to go back to like the 70s to see what damage that actually caused in the markets and businesses across the board. And I think he's touching a lot about this inflation topic because he just doesn't see a way that the Fed can engineer a soft landing. A soft landing being, okay, you know what? The Fed has like printed $9 trillion uh, worth of money dropped interest rates to basically zero for a record period of time, something that's never, ever happened in the history of markets. Naturally, it's going to cause inflation. And he's been claiming this not just right now, but for the last couple of years. So he's kind of structured his portfolio where anything that he's long or that he's bought, him being an activist investor, believes that he has a competitive edge in that space where he can like reshuffle management ensure changes are created to make the company more efficient, etc. But at the same time, he claims that he's protected his portfolio. And this is over the last like couple of years, he's protected his portfolio from a downturn by doing various hedges. Sadly, this way of investing is definitely not applicable to your average Joe or, you know, people like us mm-hmm. who do not have access to buy out companies and change management, nor do we have these kinds of like ISDAs or CSAs or these kind of documents Fine with investment banks to take on leveraged positions. So, you know, from a big picture wise, 
do I kind of agree with his thesis that this is a Fed engineer to a large extent, a bubble in various asset classes, will they be able to deflate it and not pop it? If you look over the course of history over the last 50, 60 years, there's not been much success in that aspect, right? Like markets tend to overshoot up and sadly the same way markets tend to overshoot or correct in the downward trend too. So from that aspect, you know, I personally do believe that some kind of a correction is probably on the cards. Does that mean that that should change one's investing thesis if they are, you know, concerned, if they are only looking at like the long-term business fundamentals, all of these things that, you know, you and I have been discussing on the show for Mm -hmm. over a couple of years right now, Mm -hmm. not particularly. But for the day traders or people who are like into the short-term okay, I, I, I think I know where the markets are going in the next couple of months and all of this stuff. It definitely pays heat to be like quite cautious right now, given the volatility in the market. All right. Can you help us understand why Carl Icahn then says, um, in terms of his positioning for a possible recession in America, he's betting against malls and commercial real estate. That's part of his positioning. Uh, why would that be the thing to do if you're moving towards a recessionary environment? Right. So I think it's twofold, right? One is, I mean, obviously we've seen huge headwinds in this space given the birth of e-commerce and the rapid rise of e-commerce. So most like, you know, if you look at the consumer wallet, the U.S. is still a little bit lagging as compared to, say, China or even the higher growth countries in Asia, where most shopping is done online right now. That trend is definitely coming across the U.S. too. I mean, Amazon did not become a multi-trillion dollar company by setting up huge malls, right, and selling its goods. Mm-hmm. It became the everything store by on, like selling stuff online and Walmart too. So I think from the top line headwinds, that's one aspect. Mm-hmm. But then also going through the balance sheet of these overly leveraged companies, it'll be very, very difficult for them to refinance their debt at these extremely low rates what they've experienced over the past, you know, since the global financial crisis, basically, right? So over the last 15 years, if I am, say, a company that has taken upon huge amounts of debt on my balance sheet, my business probably is, you know, low uh, net income multiples, uh, but that even, even if it's those slim margins are justifiable if I'm able to raise debt at basically, you know, zero, one, two, three, four percent interest rate. But as and when that debt comes due, like these these bonds that these companies have issued, as they come due, they need to be able to refinance them. Just like the way we have to refinance our mortgage sometimes, similarly, corporates have to refinance their debt. Now, if they were in a market where, say, 10 years ago, they issued a 10-year bond at an interest rate of, say, like 4 or 5%, then coming into the markets right now, trying to roll over that or reissue it, suddenly instead of 4 or 5%, you're suddenly having to pay 7 or 8% in the market. And that kind of wipes out your entire profitability, your underlying profitability of actually you know, producing or buying these goods from a low-cost country and selling them to consumers. And then you start going into this, you know, cash flow crunch. It it starts spiraling downwards quite quickly if you're an overly leveraged or overextended company. And I think that's the kind of looking at both of those aspects. uh, Carl Icahn's made a pretty huge bet, a pretty sizable bet against this entire industry. He has indeed. He says we have a very large position on shorting malls through an index called the CMBX index. And that is... uh, an index that basically tracks the health of the commercial real estate market 
in the U.S. through holdings and really it's sophisticated investors like ICANN that can buy in short derivatives tied to this index. But if we take a step back and look at this broader point that at risk are these areas of commercial real estate in the commercial real estate market, I wonder, Arun, what does investing in this higher interest rate environment that we're all expecting, what does it mean for you crucially, particularly for assets like property? Right. So uh, it, it, it's a tough question where, you know, in a broad basis, looking at the segment, mm-hmm. it typically tends to be very over leveraged companies. Right. But that does not mean that there might be some pockets within that space, within the overall property segment, like, uh, you know, data like networks, right, where all these data center uh, ETFs that have popped up, there could be a lot of interesting avenues for people to deploy capital in that because the underlying business is growing so rapidly that even with a slight increase in interest rates or a very decent or increase in interest rates, they'll be able to refinance that debt. And in that case, you know, when people like beat down sectors like they have, you know, people look at property and they're like, okay, I just want to stay away from this because it's leverage. I think that's where the savvy investor can come in, see some certain areas within these beaten down segments and say, okay, you know, on a risk reward basis wise, I genuinely believe in the underlying growth of the business within this sector. Maybe not, you know, malls given the whole e-commerce headwinds, but maybe more in these, you know, uh, data center segments, maybe in healthcare where the cost of like increase in inflation and stuff can be passed over to people a little bit easier than say a consumer discretionary good where people might suddenly decide to, okay, you know what? I don't have that much money to spend on buying like an $8 coffee, but if I have to spend something on taking care of my health, I have no choice but to do it. So that's, those are the kind of like some, some seg, sub segments of the property market that at least I personally am taking a look at, regardless of where the interest rates go over the next one, two or five years. Really interesting. Thank you for that. Let's shift our focus to China now. Alibaba's move to buy back its own shares have some questioning whether other Chinese tech firms are likely to do the same. So some background, uh, Alibaba expanded its share buyback program from 15 billion to 25 billion. It's a second such move it's made in less than a year. And this is the largest buyback in the company's history. We're seeing it run through March 2024. Joining Alibaba is Xiaomi, which declared it will begin buying as much as 1.3 billion of its own shares after posting better than expected results. Tencent Holdings, there's speculation that it's next in line. So, do you think that more Chinese tech firms, Arun, uh, are, are going to be looking at buybacks in the wake of what Alibaba's done? And what does this mean for retail investors? I mean, I honestly hope so, Michelle. (laughs) Full disclosure, I'm like quite long Alibaba shares myself. I started buying them at about 150 Hong Kong dollars, bought them again at 100, bought them again at like when it was trading close to 80. So, I mean, there's just too much value in these businesses that value investor, you know, can't get involved in. And from that aspect, if I'm like Alibaba management, Mm -hmm. right, I was basically, my wings were clipped for the past two years uh, on the back of, you know, maybe partially my own fault or largely my own fault, the way the Chinese government has been operating, etc. But then I think that the tide turned, right? We talked about this last week where the vice premier came out saying that, okay, you know, now I think they're kind of done. It's time to look back at, uh, look forward to 
IPO listings of Chinese companies in the U.S. and let's get back, like let's not uh, clamp down on these tech companies or Chinese tech companies as much. So what we've seen across all these larger tech companies uh, headquartered out of China is they started firing some employees, which, I mean, obviously, you know, it's terrible for the specific employee, but from a bigger holistic point of view for the company, clear indications have been given by the government. Look, don't go expanding into 20 different segments. Don't sit and, you know, go through your crazy acquisition the way Tencent, Alibaba, all these guys have done. Instead, just stay in your lane. And if you want to grow it, grow that specific lane in a nice, healthy manner, taking care of the uh, entire Chinese population, by all means, go ahead. And they've been given that green light. So from a management perspective and from a shareholder perspective, save costs on going you know, too far outside your lane. Uh, growth is going to be more steady, fair enough. But at the same time, if I can keep buying back my shares at these extremely attractive multiples on a price to earnings ratio, on all of these other metrics that investors look at to buy their underlying shares, it suddenly becomes a lot more attractive, right? And buying back shares is a fantastic way to achieve that because as your number of outstanding shares decreases, your price to earnings ratio correspondingly decreases and thereby making the company look more attractive for investors to pump in money. So from that aspect, I think uh, we're seeing a big turn in the tide from uh, the way from top down, from the government messaging, from uh, management messaging of these companies, and at these valuations, if they're not allowed, I mean, ideally, sure, right? Take all that extra cash on your balance sheet, go and deploy it in like these high growth companies to keep showing ridiculously high amounts of growth. But as we've seen, the government is not for that. We saw Tencent tapering its revenue growth when they came out with their earnings, I think a couple of days back. Alibaba will be the same, but that doesn't mean that these can't be very attractive companies for investors to invest in, not expecting the 50%, 80% growth, but just more of a steady state growth relative to these multiples. I think it makes a lot of sense. Let's check. Arun said he bought Alibaba share prices at $80. They last close at 115 Hong Kong dollars. All right, this is on the Hong Kong exchange. Yes, I, I mean, I also bought it at 150 <laughs> So just to be clear, <laughs> so the blended price is just coming back to break even, right? So, but no, I mean, I, I really do see a lot of value in all of these, like the, the top three Chinese tech companies. Uh, Xiaomi is another, you know, one of my favorites, Alibaba, Tencent, Tencent. Mm-hmm. all of these guys, right? Like it's just trading at too cheap a multiple with the blessing of the government right now. Mm-hmm. Really do feel that over the next two, three years, this could be a very nice, healthy return to an investor's portfolio. All right. Help us understand because we're all about investor education. And there have been question marks about stock buybacks in general um, because there's been such a large rise over the last decade. So are stock buybacks a good thing or not? We know that as you say they can provide benefits right Uh, companies taking advantage of the undervalued stocks on the other hand this is an artificial boost of stock price so where do you stand on stock buybacks a good thing or not for investors i think one needs to look into the way the compensation structure of management is defined and the reason i say that is because you know it's a sad thing to say but in many cases when share prices of these companies are at their record highs, management is incentivized to keep pumping up the share price even more, right? Thereby doing share buybacks, improving headline multiples, 
or for that matter, just, you know, making this into a big PR uh, spiel, telling people that, look, we have confidence in our own shares, even at these extremely elevated levels. We want all of you guys to come in and buy shares along with us. I think in those specific situations, it's terrible, right? Because what the management of a company is responsible for Mm. are all its stakeholders and for the long-term growth of the business. I mean, if you look at Berkshire, right, one of the primary, one of the best capital allocators, the history of uh, the world that's ever seen, they both, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, both clearly came out saying, on an ideal basis, we'd want to take that capital, redeploy it into our company to ensure that we can create that competitive mode, right, and ensuring long-term growth of the business. If that doesn't work, then we look outside looking to buy companies. If that doesn't work... Then, obviously, we, you know, we want to give back money to the shareholders. Anyone who's interested in selling, we are happy to buy this back in the open market. But at attractive multiples, at when they truly believe there's value in the business at this point of time, not just to try to pump up the share price because management incentive is assigned to it. So, you know, share buybacks, there's this really interesting book uh, of Capital Cities, which was this company that used to be publicly traded in the U.S., I think 50, 60 years ago, the the CEO company was very clear that I'm going to use my stock as currency. So when share prices were extremely elevated, the guy actually sat and issued more shares in the company, not buybacks, but actually issued more shares, knowing that, you know, the cash that I can raise right now, I can use that in the future for either growth of the business or to buy back shares at a future point of time. And he literally sat and did that, like selling his own company shares at high, buying them back at the low. And he came in to be one of the best capital allocators in the history of the U.S. So, I mean, that's obviously a very extenuating circumstance and not obviously recommended for most management. But if the share price of a company is attractive where it is right now, I mean, across the board, Chinese tech specifically, at these attractive multiples, having management looking at it and, you know, buying back its own shares uh, from the company perspective. And I would say from the individual management itself perspective, doing that shows a really good sign of confidence to investors to at least slowly start getting into these, some of these names after doing their own due diligence, obviously. In very interesting argument. And I'm going to pick that book up, Arun. Thank you for that. Arun Pai joining us this morning. It's been called Mini Berkshire. Allegheny, the core of its operations is insurance and, and reinsurance. And just three days ago, Berkshire Hathaway announced the acquisition of Allegheny Corporation. Let's get a little closer at the logic of the acquisition. Arun, as an interested party, you've talked about Berkshire Hathaway shares before. Uh, we know Berkshire Hathaway's Class B shares uh, trading at about 348 US dollars. Um, we were talking about this a little earlier and somebody in the office said, oh, I'm Berkshire Hathaway shares going at half a million dollars? And I said, no, they're in you know, <laughs> the class of shares as well. Uh, so tell us, Arun, as an interested party, are you cheering Berkshire Hathaway's acquisition of Allegheny? I mean, I, I love it. Like it, it fits in like a glove because the guy who ran it was part of the Berkshire family back in the day. Uh, he decided to leave uh, be the CEO of this company, has grown it substantially. Uh, I think the capital deployed was something like $11 billion or something, give or take. Yep. The sad fact is, uh, even though it's a fantastic acquisition, you know, right company culture, uh, insurance is a very, very tricky business, right? Because you're basically promising an IOU 
to people to pay you right now for a potential payout in case something you know bad happens or whatever in the future. And people want to have that confidence that this entity is going to be safe and sound, not take my money today, do stupid things with it the way AIG, the way G Financial did, uh, over-leveraging themselves, trying to squeeze out that extra couple of basis points to pad the wallet of management. That is definitely not the case for this business. Uh, the only sad factor is from a, a shareholder's perspective of Berkshire is that it just barely moves the needle. Right. I mean, in any other or most other markets or most other companies, I should say, if the company deploys $10 billion, it, it makes a huge impact on the underlying business. Even the likes of, say, like an Amazon that has a much higher market cap. But in the case of Berkshire, you know, having at, uh, he came out with a shareholder letter, I think, just a couple of weeks ago, having close to $140 plus billion worth of cash, it's barely a drop in the ocean. Right. So, you know, when people were hoping that, uh, you know, before, sadly, you know, as everyone passes away, there would be one gigantic, you know, in his terms, an elephant gun being deployed where he can buy like a 30, 40 billion dollar business at attractive multiples. Sadly, he's not found any of these. Right. So from the perspective of deploying 10 billion dollars in a smart manner, fantastic. Does it sadly make a difference in the business, in the conglomerate that is Berkshire? Sadly not. Help us understand in your years of Berkshire ownership, when do you look to add shares? Uh, so the way I set up my Berkshire plan of investing is every three months, I just keep buying a certain amount. And that's been taking place over the last like 10 years. Oh, wow. The rationale for that is, uh, you know, and, and I've come onto your show and said, you know, most people should just be looking at buying the index, right? Because buy and hold for the long term, at least in developed markets, uh, especially in the U.S., you will probably, I mean, and people should do this experiment, right? Mm. Create two portfolios. One is your punting or your trading or you thinking you can time the market portfolio. Mm -hmm. And the other one is just sit and buy on a regular basis in small amounts, whatever amount you're comfortable with, buying the underlying index, or at least the way I look at it, Berkshire is an index, but with the world's best capital allocator running at the helm. So, in, now, while that's not done that great as compared to S&P over the past 10, 15 years, there I say over the next 10 years where the inflationary market interest rate, uh, I, I think the whole concept of value investing, if you look, look out over the next 10 years, is going to be playing a much more important role. From that aspect, I would rather buy Berkshire shares other than the S&P index, but that's me personally. But coming back to my example, by all means, I highly encourage all your listeners, set up two portfolios or two different accounts, try both strategies out, and over the course of five years or 10 years, see which one is outperformed. And if you look at active money managers, the majority of them have actually underperformed the index, thinking that they can go in and out because of this war, that war, this inflation, that inflation, interest rates rising, collapsing, all of this other news that we are bombarded with on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute, second-by-second basis yep. as competitors buying the index. That is a great experiment for us. We should all get started and we'll compare notes in 10 years. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks as always, Arun. Arun Pai there, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg 
or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.